From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting the show today talking about the ongoing conversations about what to do with a portion of Beach Avenue in Vancouver. It is very popular for residents, for visitors, and it used to be a way to exit Stanley Park. Well, a lot of concern has been brought forward, especially with the big infrastructure project going forward, about what's going to happen to the congestion in and out of the park and if changes are needed. Sarah Kirby-Young is an ABC City Councillor and joins us now now to talk more about this. Councillor Kirby Young, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Jill. Well, once again, or maybe I should say we are continuing to talk about Stanley Park and specifically now the Beach Avenue part of exiting and entering the park. We know there have been traffic backups at that kind of pinch point. A lot of talk about what should be done. I know you raised this issue to a standing committee at Council. What would you like to see done in that particular area? Yeah, so to provide some context, yesterday staff were receiving, or or council were receiving a report um, on capital projects, and that included some improvements such as to um, bike lanes downtown and other things. And in the course of that conversation, I asked the question around, how do we alleviate the pinch points with people exiting the park on beach? And are there alternate configurations that will allow people to exit the park and retain the bike infrastructure? So I want to be very clear, nobody was suggesting that we rip out or cancel the Beach Avenue bike lane. It's well-loved and I think well-used. The question was, um, what we're seeing is that the when that was put in as a pandemic measure, um, and it was done in quick response to allow more people, to, more space to spread out so that pedestrians had more space for walking, kind of moving bikes up to the, more onto the roadway there, um, beyond, next to the existing bike path. And the question was, is this the best configuration moving forward to support both bikes and to have a better exit from the park? It was a really good discussion, and what we heard from our transportation staff was that they were looking at a a whole number of measures, such as potentially changing the directional flow now coming out of the park towards Morton, um, so that you have the traffic run in an alternate direction that would potentially allow um, exit from the park uh, on those two sides, instead of just dumping people out near the causeway and try to alleviate some of that pressure. So these are the questions I think we should be asking is that how do we ensure that the flow is optimized moving forward because it was never intended as a it was a it was an initial quick implementation but is that the best structure going forward one of the concerns that seems to be being raised is about any change to that configuration the way it is now that yes there would still be a bike lane there but there was some concern that the bike lane would be a lot smaller or it would be an area where the bikes would be sharing that that smaller area is that one of the possible configurations being looked at I think people extrapolated a council conversation around how do we alleviate the pressure coming out of the park, specifically um, at the park end there, uh, the very north end of uh, Beach and up to Morton Avenue, um, relative into a whole conversation around the entire uh, Beach Avenue as a whole. Um, and so I think there was sort of a broad conversation around what are the best solutions, but nobody's suggesting that we diminish the bike area. What we're asking is can they coexist? And maybe the solution is just dealing with the part up to Martin in terms of getting people out of the park. There's also, I would point out, a master planning exercise that's happening for the waterfront area in the West End around how do you make that a more people, pedestrian, bike-friendly destination overall. So these are really important questions to ask is that we continue to improve spaces and make roads more um, beneficial for people in terms of space and public life and enjoyment. How do you also get necessary traffic through there? And so it's really interesting to talk about is it directional one-way traffic? 
is there a two-way flow, for example, um, that works? And so I think what staff are going to do is provide some options to us. But that's our job, to ask the questions around how do we alleviate some of the pressure points. And is it also linked to the water project that the park board voted in favor of that Metro Vancouver is going to be going ahead with a a massive project that's going to take place. And as we know, likely five years of construction and it will have an impact on the park on accessing and exiting the park. Do we need that exit at Beach Avenue for vehicles as that goes forward? Well, absolutely, that's a consideration, and we would be remiss if we weren't asking those questions. Replacement of that water main is critical infrastructure, but that can, that's going to go on for years, and that definitely is going to have access or have impact, I should say, on how people move through the park. So this conversation around ensuring that people have an alternate means to exit becomes even more important. And again, not looking to take out the um, bike lane on Beach Avenue, just making looking to make sure that people can get in and out of the park more easily, and we don't have the bottlenecks that we're seeing now. I think one of the lines that maybe got some that are that are maybe more pro-cycling than others, uh, and it was one of your colleagues, uh, Councillor Montague, uh, said uh, something about looking at taking it back to pre-pandemic configuration or or what it was like pre-pandemic. And uh, obviously, if, if you're enjoying the bike lanes and using the bike lanes, you probably like it better the way it is now. But is there a plan or is one of the options going to be that it would look the same as it did pre-pandemic? Uh, nobody has suggested that. I think that comment was more related to how people get in and out of the park itself. I don't think that comment was related to Beach Avenue as a whole. Um, and again, uh, this isn't something that was directed by council. There, we have uh, some delegated authorities to transfer, for transportation staff. That's how they were able to put this configuration in the first place. This was council asking some questions to staff around, what are you looking at doing next? What are the options? What does it look like to keep everybody moving on all modes through that area? Um, and we're going to get some good information back, I think, as a result of that discussion. So we can look at some of those alternatives. And again, maybe it's switching the direction that people flow on beach um, out of that park. Um, and that might be one quick, simple solution versus some of the longer term as we look to build out a really great waterfront area for everybody that really enjoys going down to English Bay. And and does that kind of work with the bigger plan or the bigger picture of that, that beachfront or that waterfront part of English Bay and the park itself and making sure that there is still access to businesses and that there can still be vehicle traffic and tour buses and horse-drawn carriages and things so that, that all different types of or all different modes of transportation can still access that park? Yeah, that's a big part of the master planning exercise for the West End waterfront, um, really is exactly what you described. And, you know, if you travel to different destinations um, and beachfront areas around the world, I think about St. Kilda and Melbourne or others, um, they really do put the priority on people, but they still have to have the ability to get people to uh, and out of the destination um, that don't necessarily have the benefit of living in the area um, and to get those critical services in, whether it's transit um, uh, or particularly tourism is a really important part of the economy. So. Um, making it kind of recreation destination first and foremost, but people still need to get there and and services still need to, to support as well. I know there were some questions about cost as well, kind of going back to the Beach Avenue and that particular pinch point. Is there an idea on which one of those configurations might cost more or or be more cost effective, or is that part of the planning process right now as well? Well, again, this was sort of a very early conversation where council was just raising some questions uh, to staff to say, look, we'd like to get more information around what you're looking at and what the options are. What we heard from our head of uh, transportation and streets and engineering was that probably one of the quicker, easier, and more cost-effective options in the short term is changing uh, sort of the, the lights and the directional flow 
out of the park because uh, that's sort of signaling change. You're not doing anything different to streets. You're just simply changing which direction the traffic flows in. Um, and so that's what we heard is probably a short-term and more cost-effective option. But we'll, we'll get some information back and then we'll be able to take a look at it. We don't have that yet. Right. Any idea then on a timeline when you might get a better picture or a better idea on what those options are? Uh, I anticipate that we'll get a briefing probably early in the fall. Uh, Council's on break for August, and I think we'll get a briefing early in the fall when we get back, and then we'll start to get um, a little bit more understanding of the options. All right. Uh, Councillor, I wanted to quickly ask you as well, uh, before I let you go, I think last time uh, you were on the show, we were talking about the mural on the side of the storm brewing uh, the brewery building in East Vancouver. You uh, had said that you were going to look at ways that it could be saved, even though uh, the owners of the brewery had been told the mural mural has to go. Uh, Sounds like it has been saved. How did that all come about? It has been saved. I'm very excited to report that. And uh, I think the community uh, stood up and, and, you know, we heard from everybody kind of loudly and clearly. And I brought a motion forward, uh, emergency motion under new business because we were breaking for summer and I didn't want to leave storm brewing hanging. So uh, we talked about that this week at council and got unanimous support. And what the motion asked for was to grandfather storm brewing but also to look at modernizing our mural and our signage bylaws so that other local businesses can also have similar murals um, if it's on their own premises. And so we'll get some recommendations coming back on that. Um, But I think that's a good outcome. Keeps a level playing field for everybody. Gives other businesses the opportunity to have some great murals like Storm Brewing and Storm Brewing's uh, murals here to stay. Is that is that odd to have a council overturn a decision that was made that wasn't a council decision to have it to to, to order the brewery to take the mural down? It was it was a ticket or, or a bylaw infraction. Is it strange that council would then overturn that? You know, one of the things that I've learned on this job is uh, sometimes how old and how antiquated our bylaws are. I think the signage bylaw was last updated in nineteen ninety three. Uh, So, you know, you're talking almost 30 years ago, um, and I don't think it contemplated the appetite for public art then. Um, And so there's a lot of opportunities to modernize. And oftentimes it's a situation like this that comes up that it illustrates the bigger problem of outdated regulations. And so council does have to give direction to change and update bylaws. And that's what happened here. All right. The mural has been saved. Councillor, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Great to talk with you. No worries. I would encourage everybody to go down and check out Storm Brewing. I had a chance to go down there and you can see the mural and they've got some great fruit flavored summer kind of choices. So it's a good option for the weekend. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, with one of the larger BC ferries in dry dock and that erroneous nine sailing wait time that was recently posted to the BC ferries website along a major route, safe to say there is a lot of frustration with BC ferries. Take a listen to this hopeful BC ferries passenger who was stuck in that lineup yesterday. My experience, I woke up first thing this morning between seven and eight. I looked for the ferry schedule. Everything was reserved and the the soonest we would be able to book was 3 o'clock. I decided just to to leave this morning, try to get here when we could get in line and it's going to be at least a five or six hour wait. That was Amy Miller. She was in the ferry line with her kids yesterday. And as you heard there, five, six, uh, several hours she waited in that lineup. Well, Leonard Krogh is joining us now, the mayor of Nanaimo. Mayor Krogh, thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, good afternoon. Always a pleasure. Well, what are your thoughts on, on the fact that, uh, yes, ferries break down, we know that, but with this larger vessel back in dry dock and now all of these issues with the website? Let's 
just say if BC Ferries were a private corporation with shares being traded on the stock market, I wouldn't want to have be heavily invested. Uh, <laughs> candidly, uh, it's pretty frustrating for those of us who live on Vancouver Island, and we're near, nearly a million of us now, uh, who rely on BC Ferries for the transportation of trucks and vehicles and not just the passengers, for our food, etc. I'm trying to be restrained in my comments, but honestly, this is our highway. This is what we rely on. If you shut down the Trans-Canada number one, you know, you've got a couple other routes in the Fraser Valley. You shut down the Coke, you're pretty much stuck. Well, you shut down the ferries or they're not reliable, we're stuck over here. So, uh, let's just say BC Ferries needs to get its act together. And a system that uh, can't, uh, how shall I say, communicate one with the left hand to the right hand, uh, coupled with all the other problems they've had, I mean, surely to God now they've figured out what can go wrong because pretty much everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Uh, the transportation minister was asked about this. Uh, he was holding a, an unrelated news conference, but reporters did ask him specifically about this and, and really focusing on now that the, the website having that glitch and showing erroneous information. Uh, Rob Fleming uh, said that there is going to be a complete overhaul of the system and that that overhaul can't come soon enough. Uh, have you been hearing from constituents or, or what have you heard about the the fact that the website didn't have correct information and people were being turned away and didn't really know what was going on? Um, the complaints I've had are actually from a family member who was trying to get to Vancouver Island, believe it or not. Uh, so it, it's extremely frustrating for people. And the government in the last several years, in every other way, whether it's to pay the uh, vacant home tax, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the property tax here in Nanaimo, they want everything done online. And yet the corporation that delivers millions of people back and forth and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of goods and food and everything else every year didn't somehow have this already in place, it kind of begs the question as to what they're doing, and is this uh, the responsibility of the board? Is it management not advising the board? Is it uh, is it failing to say, look, we need these monies? I don't know what it is, but it's a bit surprising that you know, in 2023, in the middle of the summer, you have someone saying they've got problems. The update to uh, what is it, uh, Mr. Uh, Fleming said uh, an update in technology and a complete overhaul as part of their investment plan. Well, that's all very good, but today is today. We're not interested in what they're planning down the road. This needs to get fixed. Uh, One of the things I know that caused some frustration for people, again, with the website not working, and uh, Jordan Armstrong, one of my colleagues uh, who works uh, at Global News, uh, made a comment I guess, ironically, on Twitter, that at that point, BC Ferries was saying to to check Twitter for more updated information. But not everybody is on Twitter. In fact, not even the majority of people are on Twitter and are actively looking for BC Ferries information there. Well, it's amusing when the government is also telling us not to, uh, no no one should advertise with Twitter, and they're not going to advertise with Twitter and others uh, because of the issues around, you know, using the, the news that folks uh, like you produce every day. Uh, it's a bit of a mixed message, I must say. 
but you know, um, I'm I'm hopeful that given the problems that have been created, there will be some intense interest in fixing this so that it doesn't happen again. As I say, we seem to have gone through staffing shortages and we've handled COVID and all these other problems. I mean, uh, touch wood, God forbid, I don't know what else can go wrong in some respects. Hmm. Uh, well, I hope you didn't uh, jinx it by just uh, saying that, because uh, you I, never I, I know. Touched <laughs> um, I touched wood. <laughs> Rob Fleming did say uh, that it was his understanding that the service woes, uh, the the problems with the website were because of general underinvestment in the outdated IT systems, that those have caused problems in the past as well. And he said that his ministry has been assured by BC Ferries that that will be fixed within a week and that it won't happen again. How confident are you in that well uh, you know i always i always take uh, a politician at their word uh, uh, you know because i'm i've done it myself uh, i i i trust minister fleming uh, made that statement based on on good solid information uh, because as you well know when you make those kinds of statements and they turn out to be inaccurate later uh, there is political hell to be paid and particularly by uh, the people on Vancouver Island and the people who are reliant on the ferries and who are looking forward to getting goods back and forth or getting to medical appointments or seeing family or getting to that lovely resort they booked ages ago on the island and, and they find they couldn't get there or they missed a night's accommodation, whatever. I mean, there is an enormous ripple effect every time a ferry doesn't run. People rely on it. The Coastal Celebration is set to resume to service tomorrow, uh, which I know is good news for many because that is a bigger vessel. It does take uh, more uh, more vehicles, more people on it. Um, might have lo- limited food service the first day, according to BC Ferries. Mm-hmm. I think people can probably deal with that. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the hope being, I think, that uh, things will be back in full operation and working smoothly, uh, n- not only for for day-to-day, obviously, like you said, people that have medical appointments have other things, but as we head and get closer to another long weekend. Well, exactly. And look, you know, our tourism industry in British Columbia, well, everywhere for that matter, a very, very hard hit by COVID. Um, some of those folks have just managed to hang on. Uh, they need several years of good, solid revenue and, and full bookings in order to make their bankers happy, Right. That, that, that's a reality. And, and so we cannot afford uh, to disrupt uh, their uh, existence anymore by, by threats, if you will, or a lack of, of ability to deliver the service. Now, the good news is, you know, we have the Hello Ferry Group uh, starting operations very quickly. Uh, foot passenger service downtown to downtown, Vancouver to Nanaimo. You've still got Gulf Island seaplanes, you've got Harbour Air seaplanes, you've got Sea Air, uh, and you've got the Helijet. But those folks are moving individuals only. They're not moving vehicles, they're not moving the uh, motorhome, the travel trailer, they're not moving the trucks with the groceries that, you know, I'm looking forward to buying at the end of a long work, work day when I'm hungry. Uh, so it is, again, I can't emphasize how much it needs to be a priority. 
it, because we don't have alternatives. I mean, as, as we know from fires, um, sometimes, you know, you, you knock out the only uh, road available, such as the road to Alberni. Mind if we had an upgraded rail service and a proper rail system, that wouldn't be much of an issue. But when you knock out the ferry system, for those of us in the island, there are no realistic, substantial alternatives. And you mentioned uh, that whole list of privately operated companies that are offering service, like you say, not with vehicles, but offering to get people back and forth. I think whenever there's uh, something like this happening at BC Ferries, where we're seeing such confusion and so many people inconvenienced, there, there are two arguments often made. One is that it should go fully back under the control of government. The other, privatize it. Let it become a private company that would be operating better. What are your thoughts? Is there one particular way it should go? No. I mean, look, it, it's a major service that I think is like it has to be pretty much delivered by government. Whether or not taking it, and I was around when that question was considered in Victoria on and off. There's, there's many arguments one way or the other. Uh, I'm not in favour of privatising it, however, because candidly, we look at what's happened in Great Britain, for example, with their water system. They are now facing significant problems, lack of investment. This is not a service that can, how shall I say, we, we, we can uh, accept as a low priority. Like, like the delivery of water, it's crucial to everybody in a, in a coastal province. The, fer- the ferry service is a crucial, needed uh, service that, that you can't risk. You, and, and frankly, the prices that people, I think, would be expected to pay, because keep in mind, it is still subsidized, uh, would be incredibly prohibitive, would damage our economy generally. Uh, so I'm, I'm not in favor of privatization. Whether or not direct crown control would be better, I don't know. It just seems to me that many of the things that have created problems have been a lack of investment and poor policy over the years. I mean, for years, BC Ferries, for example, had a long string of casuals uh, when the unemployment rate was was higher. Uh, And many people who would have pursued a long-term career and been available to deliver BC Ferry services uh, didn't stay. Well, part of the bitter fruit of this is they've had trouble recruiting. They've had staffing shortages over time. So, again, uh, long-term lessons from what's happened in the past, and you just would want to think that they're going to get it right. Because, as I say, it's crucial, it's needed, we rely on it. And frankly, you know what, I know the staff are working hard, and I know how frustrating it must be for them when they've got cranky customers and and, uh, passengers who aren't getting the service they deserve, and frankly, the service they paid for. Mayor Leonard Krogh, thank you so much for coming back on the show. A pleasure as always. Uh, Hopefully a happy story someday. Well, this is not great news. Canada saw a surge in vehicle theft and robberies in 2022. These are the thefts that were reported. This is police-reported crime, and that rose for a second successive year. This is in a new report. It was released earlier today by Statistics Canada, showing the incidence and severity of crime as measured by the Crime Severity Index in this country. It increased by 4% compared to the previous year. The StatsCan report also says that motor vehicle theft had the greatest impact on the increase in in the overall crime severity index 
And it was followed by robbery, break and enter, minor theft and shoplifting. The rate of auto thefts reported by police up 24 percent last year alone. So what can be done to keep your vehicle safe and why are we seeing this uptick in car crime? Jeremy Cato joins us now, automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, great to have you on the show. Thanks for doing this. Hi, Jill. I hope you're well. I hope you're well uh, also. Well, my <laughs> car, car hasn't, hasn't been, been stolen it's yet. Not, it's not been stolen, and I uh, should knock wood or something. It hasn't been broken into uh, in a few months either, so that's a good thing. But what are your thoughts on these numbers and showing this uptick in crime right across the country? Well, I, I think one of the reactions that I have right off the bat is, you know, this kind of happens at a time when the prices of new cars uh, and used cars are you know, they're, they're surging. I mean, the average price of a new car, according to Auto Trader, is about sixty thousand dollars now, and a used one is just under forty. It's pretty hard to find any car, new or used, under well, any used car under twenty thousand dollars. So, uh, you know, obviously there's an ec- economic factor involved in this. Is that if you steal a car, you can sell it on the used car market for a lot, or you can ship it out of the country in a shipping container. Uh, to various other countries or just send it over the border to the United States. So there's an economic piece. I've also looked at the crime statistics. I live in in North Vancouver in Lower Lonsdale, which has absolutely surging uh, property crime uh, issues, especially around car theft and the, the theft of catalytic converters, which are full of very valuable metals. Right, which is which is probably one of the the attractants of this. I know there's also concern as well when you talk about throwing a vehicle or shipping it out of the country. Uh, there are concerns that it's organized crime networks that are doing just that, exporting vehicles and using that sophisticated technology to take them and to get them out and to profit from them. Yes, and you know, I, I don't I don't want to be too hard on the on the various police departments around because municipal police forces are are under a lot of stress for lots of other reasons besides property theft. But most most uh, most municipal police forces, and I know this because I've just done a big, long video on this for a separate YouTube channel that I have, um, you know, the, the way municipal police forces respond, uh, well, their response mechanisms is what they have. They, they you know, so you're, if you get your car stolen, you might see a police officer. That police officer will take a report. And then that will be sent up the, the investigative chain. And because there's so many of these things, it's likely not to be to be investigated to any great extent at all. And so we, ha- we have a policing problem as much as we have a crime problem. But, but you know, that's a big issue. And, and I don't know that anybody has a quick solution to that one. Right. So if we look at the vehicles, I mean, it is it is such a big issue. And anybody listening that's had their car stolen or had their car broken into, you know, uh, just what a violation it feels like and how what an inconvenience it is. I know police always say, don't leave anything valuable in your vehicle. And that will uh, that will decrease the chance that it is broken into, which makes sense. But that said, I've had my vehicle broken into at least twice when there has been nothing, absolutely nothing visible from the outside. So how do you protect your vehicle? Right. Well, there's a couple of things you can do, of course, is it, follow that basic rule, keep any uh, valuables out of sight. Uh, if you're worried about the car itself being stolen, well, um, you can park it in a locked garage. If you have one, you can park uh, an older car in front of it so the vehicle car itself can't be driven away. And you can protect yourself um, from the electronic side of 
stealing your car in terms of making dummy keys for your car with a couple of ways. Um, car, th- car thieves do a couple of interesting things. Some, but very few, will use a relay box that will intercept your key fob's uh, frequency transmission, and from there they can do a, uh, make a, a false uh, key. But that's very difficult to do because the, 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 the intercept distance is like two to three meters, not very far away. You'd have to have a car thief almost standing next to you to do that. But you can also have car thieves break into cars and create a dummy key through the onbo- uh, onboard uh, diagnostic connector, the data port in your car, which every car has. So a, a car thief would break into that, plug into the, the uh, onboard data port, and uh, they can use it, then they can make a dummy key using an aftermarket tool that reprograms blank key fobs that you can source illegally on, on the Internet. And, you can, and good thieves can get locksmith codes, again, via the Internet. So one of the things you can do is buy an aftermarket onboard diagnostic port cover that will lock access to your OBD2 connector. Or you can do something that's kind of time-tested, which is buy a big club and (laughs) stick it on your steering wheel. (laughs) I mean, it's not pretty, but it sure is effective. I'm so glad you brought that up, Jeremy, because I was just going to ask you that when talking about all of these high tech ways that thieves are getting in and stealing vehicles, because the other day I walked by what I want to say was about a 1991 Toyota Tercel that had the club on the wheel. And my first thought was, is somebody really going to be stealing a car that old, this beat up car that was parked on the side of the road? But clearly that car hadn't been stolen because it had that club and that club worked. Well, you know, Joe, I think that's absolutely the easiest way. There's, you know, some other basic things you could do. Um, You know, when you get out of your car and you park it overnight, you could lift the hood and uh, disconnect the battery. Uh, Won't be able to start the car then. Um, you know, if you're really knowledgeable about cars, you could get into your, uh, you could you could take the fuse out of your electronic control module inside the car, but you really need to know something about cars. You could take a spark plug out of your car. Uh, you know, again, that's very technical. So I think the club may be your best solution, uh, you know, especially if you're worried about somebody breaking in and duplicating your key using the onboard diagnostic port, which, which can be done. And, and, you know, if these are sophisticated car, thief, car theft rings, they'll know how to do that. They'll have the locksmith codes. They'll know how to get into your OBD2 system and steal it. So maybe that club is the cheapest solution to give you a little bit of peace of mind. Is it also, though, if somebody's going to go to that level of sophistication to make a dummy key or to to copy it and steal the car that way, is it more that the club would then be a deterrent and, well, if I have a choice of this car that has a club and this car that's parked beside it that doesn't, I'll go for the other one? Because I would think, too, if they really wanted that car, couldn't they just saw through the steering wheel and take it anyway? Well, you can, but you know, you're you're right. I I, I would totally agree with you. It, why are you? Why is a person a thief? Well, a thief is a thief because they don't want to work very hard. Um, you know, it's fairly easy work if if you're good at it, and the rewards are pretty dramatic. So you would think a thief would typically, well, if you've watched The Sopranos, you know that those guys spend most of their time playing cards and sitting around, and then they do their thievery at night and make a whole bunch of money. So the easy solution is always the best. The other thing I would mention too, is it's not just having your car stolen, but it's, 
you know, you, if your car gets broken into, there can be other damage done to it. Maybe there's a smash and grab through the window or the, the locks get damaged if somebody breaks into the car manually. So if you give, a, if you give the car thief a reason not to, not to break into your car, you not only might save your car from being stolen, but other, other things that could damage your car as a car thief breaks in. And maybe that car thief is unsuccessful at stealing your car and your car gets damaged in other ways. Hmm. I, I wanted to go back to, to something you mentioned or the, the using that tool or that device. Like you said, somebody would have to be standing really close to you to be able to copy the information from your fob. But I saw a graphic or a diagram saying that thieves are, are actually able to do this as well. If you hang your keys at your front door, that they can go through the door and, and they're able to, in some cases, if the keys are close enough to copy them and to go about it that way. Um, is that happening? Is that something that's real? I don't think it's it's a dramatic thing that that is happening uh, you know, because that, that in that case you'd have to have a thief who would have direct knowledge of where you actually keep your keys, and if they have knowledge of where your keys are, they've probably been in your house. And if they've been in your house, either they are very sophisticated criminals, or you have a friend who's a car thief. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that one. Okay, I feel better about that one now. Yeah, uh, remember those are mo- that that st- stop start immobilizer information on the on the key fob. You have to be really close to steal that. You know, like you know, ten feet or less. All right. Um, so so do newer vehicles are they are they better equipped? Like you talk about the immobilizer that uh, even if if someone has started their car remotely, it doesn't go very far when it's away from the keys. Are they better equipped to try and deter thieves or to try and make it? So even if thieves do try and, and get away with the vehicle, they can't. Uh, I don't think they're better equipped. I, I think I think they're reasonably equipped as they have been for a long time. But if you have uh, if you have somebody who gets into your car and is able to go through the onboard diagnostic connection, um, those immobilizers won't matter. Uh, you know, if, if, they, if that car thief gets into the – this is the OBD2 port that your technician would go into to make a new key if, let's say, you lost both keys to your car, hmm. right? So, so you know, the, the, the dealer would have multiple blank key fobs in a secure area. Um, so, it, you know, the onboard um, – theft deterrent system really wouldn't apply because you've bypassed all that. You've actually created uh, through the diagnostic system um, uh, a new key using a blank key fob and using the locksmith uh, tech, uh, codes that uh, are available. And, and, you know, these are things that I mean, I guess you could ask, can we, can we sort, make diff- it more difficult to source locksmith codes via the Internet? I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but you can ask those questions. Uh, Can you make some of these uh, aftermarket programming tools more difficult to obtain? Again, um, you know, thieves are thieves because they are able to access these kinds of tools. So ideally, I think we we, we keep coming back to the basics, which is park your car. If you don't have a locked underground or a home garage in some place that's well lit, a lot of buildings now, like we live in a lot of high-rises in Vancouver now, um, are well lit and they have new cameras. I know uh, I'm a Strata Council president myself, and we've just installed security cameras all around the building now to, because we've had car thefts and, uh, and break-ins in our outside parking spaces. Um, and so, you know, it comes back to cl- well-lit place. And, you know, Jill, we keep coming back to, to, to visible deterrence, mm-hmm. like the club. <laughs> like the club. It's not sexy. But, but, you know, it, it, it's time-tested. 
Uh, Jeremy, just one other question. Uh, I'm curious. Are, are there still makes or models that are more attractive to car thieves or or they'll just go for whatever opportunity is there? I think it's yes to both of the above. I mean, car thieves are always going to want to steal the, the most desirable cars because, of course, they get the most amount of money for them. But go back to the original thing that I talked about, that a, an average an average new car today is costing a buyer $60,000. So any car you steal right now is a pretty good get if you're a car thief. And a new car, um, just under $40,000. So any used car, slightly used car, is a good get for the car thieves. And that's where we are today. You know, we, we've, we've been working our way out of, this uh, limited uh, sourcing for, for new models, but we're not there yet. It's still hard to get a good price on a new car, and there's no incentives out there to for customers of new cars. So there's a lot of incentives for criminals to steal them. And that is why we are seeing those numbers up year, oh. after, year over year. Jeremy, thank you so much. It was great talking to you about this. Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Take care now and watch your car. Get a club. <laughs> If you are a member of the Evo Car Share, you know how it works. If you're not, you've probably seen the Evo cars on the streets, maybe in your neighborhood. It works exactly how it sounds, like a share. You sign up for it. You're then able to pick up a car. If it's close to you, you book it on the app. You drive it to where you go. You pay by the minute and you drop it where you want to drop it, whether it's in a parking zone or a special Evo zone. A lot of people take advantage of the system and use that, not take advantage, but to use that system to get around as it is a lot easier in many cases than having your own vehicle, trying to find parking or anything like that. But apparently a lot of people who use the Evo car share are also leaving things behind. Dave Worf is a senior manager at Evo car share and he's joining us on the line now. Dave, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we've talked about this in the past uh, with whether it's uh, taxi companies or car share programs like Uber and Lyft. So not a huge surprise that there would also be some interesting items left behind in Evo car share vehicles. But what kinds of things have been left behind? Well, honestly, it's anything that you can imagine. But most of the common things that we see left are clothes, things like musical instruments, phones and keys. Just we have so many keys. It's, it's unbelievable. Which seems odd because it feels like you would need your keys when you get to your destination or when you're going home later in the day or, or what, at some point. So do people generally claim them or are there a lot of keys that are just in the Evo lost and found and nobody has claimed them? We, we have hundreds of, of uh, unclaimed key rings and, and keys uh, in our lost and found room. It's, it's really uh, it, it's mind-boggling, honestly, uh, how many are, are left in there. I think what happens is, is people lose them, they fall out of pockets, and they don't really think that we might be a place where they've lost their keys. Um, and so we do our best to try to get a, in touch with people to uh, to get them their, their keys back. But a lot of times they don't have any names or any markings on those keys. Hmm. And who's finding them? Is it the next person who's using the Evo or is it when they get filled up or is it the company or who, who is it that's generally finding things that have been left behind? It can be any of those. Um, sometimes someone will find some uh, any item uh, during the next trip and will call us and say, hey, I found these sunglasses or I found these keys in the, 
uh, in this car. And that gives us a bit more of a sense of who it might be that, that had it. Um, but some of them might fall down behind the seats. And then our cleaning team, a lot of times, will find them because they're doing a, a much more detailed look and, and clean inside the vehicles. And uh, they'll grab those and they'll, they'll create a ticket in our, our system and, and they'll come to our lost and found uh, warehouse. Hmm. I have a friend who uses Evo a lot, and she herself has found it at one point, and she uses it really early in the morning, so I think she's oftentimes the first person of the day using the Evo vehicle. She once found $1,200 cash inside the vehicle, and then within about a week, she found a pair of Apple earbuds. Uh, both times, she called Evo and, and said, hey, look, I found these things. I thought that was bizarre that those items were found in the vehicle, but it seems like that's just kind of par for the course. Well, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I can't say that we find twelve hundred dollars uh, all the time in the in the vehicles, but we find a lot of um, uh, single earbuds and uh, things like that uh, in the vehicles, and and it can be really challenging to to find the owner uh, based on how many trips we get per day. And so, if it's found at night, as you say, like there could have been, you know, up to to ten or twenty trips previous to that. So it can make it really challenging. Uh, you mentioned musical instruments as well. That was another one that uh, I thought was a bit strange in that even if you didn't know for sure that you had left it behind in the Evo, instruments are generally expensive and they mean something to people. You you might think that you would call or at least try and see if it was in the Evo uh, on the off chance that's where you left it. And I, I would say this. I, I think a lot of times when it comes to, to things that are of value, we do get calls from members saying, hey, did I leave this in here? Um, and we are able to to reunite those those items. A lot of times, it's the smaller items. I think that that people don't even really realize they've lost in an Evo. And the other thing I I think that's really we get a lot of car seats, a lot of booster seats that are left in the cars that no one ever seems to uh, to to um, uh, come and collect. Which has always been kind of my biggest uh, uh, question marks is why aren't people coming back for their booster seats and car seats. That does seem a bit strange because that one, too, it would make sense if you were missing it. It would make a lot of sense. You think you would probably realize, oh, I probably left it in the car share vehicle. It, it, it's really, it really is. It, it makes us scratch our heads a little bit. <laughs> we do wonder if sometimes people just, uh, you know what, I, I don't, I don't want to try to get that back. I'll just go buy another one. So huh. who, who knows? Um, I, I, I know people use Evos as well. A lot of times it's because somebody doesn't have a personal vehicle for whatever reason. So people will use them when they have to transport things that maybe they can't carry a long distance or taking it on transit would be cumbersome. Uh, so have you found things like that as well, like appliances or, or those bigger kind of bulkier items? Most of the bigger bulky items we do see people people taking, a lot of times what they might do is they might accidentally end their trip and have the the item left in the car. And at that point, they'll call us and we'll do our best to to give them access to the vehicle so they can get their stuff. Um, but we don't we don't see a lot of, of larger, larger things. I think it's just some of the things that we think, Jesus, could be sentimental or things like passports that we that we get um, uh, that people don't claim it really. Again, I think it's just that people don't realize that they've left us left it in, in an Evo. So you know, hopefully people will think, hey, maybe maybe that's where I did. You know, give us a call. We, we love reuniting things uh, back with the people that own them. In a case like that, though, with a passport that has someone's information on it, would you be able to go into the system then and contact them? We do our best, yeah. If we've got actual information about who the people are, 
um, and we can see on that trip when we've got contact info, we will let them know that it's there. Um, a lot of times, though, it could be a passenger, um, and then we don't actually know what trip it is. Um, and so we, we just hold on to those and hope that the people will reach out to us and, and then we can confirm it's actually them. And so what is the process then if somebody feels like maybe they left something in an Evo, they're not sure they're looking for it, do they just contact the company or what do they do? Yeah, so there's a, there's a number of ways to do it. Um, they can email us at info at evo.ca. Um, we have a new chat function as well on our website where they can chat to one of our agents and ask questions um, or they can call us. We have a 24-7 call center um, at 1-844-386-2386 that they can call. Um, and we'll be happy to investigate and try to get them their stuff back. And what should people do if somebody is an EVO member or a passenger? Like you said, oftentimes there will be passengers with people. If someone finds something in the car that clearly belongs to somebody, maybe like you said, it has sentimental value, what should they do in that scenario? And the best thing what we, we recommend doing is calling us um, as soon as you can to let us know that it's there. Um, we'll usually recommend that that person, depending on the size of the item, um, to put it into the glove compartment. And if it's something of value, then what we'll do is we'll actually take that car out of service and we'll have one of our team members attend to it so that we can, we can get that item and secure it. Makes a lot of sense. One other question. The, the Evo cars, people will recognize them as well because they have the roof racks. And again, for people to take, whether it's bikes or Christmas trees around the holidays, that type of thing. Has anyone ever left anything in the actual rack on the top of the vehicle? We, we, we did once find a Christmas tree. Uh, on huh. one of the racks, yes. Um, I, I don't. Uh, I don't know if that was actually one they wanted to bring home, or if they just wanted to leave it there. Um, but no, most people are. You know, they do take their bikes. Um, one of the things that I always recommend to people, though, is when they are putting their bikes, is to uh, do their best to remember that that bike is there and watch where they're parking and not go through any underground parking uh, lots because there will be damage done to their bikes and the racks. Yeah, it's a good point, especially if you're not used to driving and you're really not used to driving with a bike on top of your vehicle. Easy to forget. Exactly. Dave Worf, uh, interesting things that people have left behind in the Evo vehicles. Thank you so much for joining us and talking more about it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.